Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the third episode of Season 7. I hope you've had the chance to listen to last week's episode which focused on the life and crimes of Mark Schillibier. Before we get into this week's episode, let's break the ice as we always do. The show's opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. Here is this week's Dad Fact. In the animal kingdom, male seahorses are the only ones who carry the eggs and birth, birth is in quotation marks, the babies. I did know that. It's one of those common things you tend to be taught at school. We'll leave that one there and move swiftly on. One of my listeners suggested this week's case via Instagram. They asked to remain anonymous, however, so I will be respecting their wishes. We're in the town of Flittick this week, located in the East England county of Bedfordshire. Here are five quickfire facts about Flittick. Number one, Flittick has a silent W in its name. Whilst writing the script for this episode, I was convinced that the town's name was pronounced Flitwick, as in Professor Flitwick, but alas, I was wrong. It's pronounced Flittick, despite being spelled F-L-I-T-W-I-C-K. Number two, Flittick is mentioned in the Doomsday Book of 1086 as a hamlet on the River Flit. Number three, Flittick Moor is a biological site of special scientific interest managed by the Wildlife Trust. It has areas of woodland and wet grassland. Number four, Flittick Castle was an 11th century Motton Bailey castle surrounded by a moat. The earthwork remains of the castle are a scheduled monument and are on what is now a public green space known as Temple Field or Mount Hill. And finally, number five, the River Flit runs through the town. The short river is roughly 16 miles, 26 kilometres in length and is a tributary of the River Ival. As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Flittick was 12,998. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. This episode has been a difficult one to research. To start with, there's a limited number of articles covering this case, so it's probably going to be a shorter episode than usual. That isn't my main issue though. 
What frustrated me the most was the lack of background information concerning Tracy Anstis, a loving mother whose life was tragically ended at the hands of her soon-to-be ex-husband. Tracy was an incredibly loyal person who had many friends that loved her dearly. To say she was a fantastic mum to her only child, a daughter, would be a massive understatement. She was Tracy's whole world. Tracy worked within an area of the South Essex Partnership University NHS Foundation Trust, more commonly known as SEPT or SEPT, that's how I'm going to refer it going forward. That was an NHS Foundation Trust that provided mental health, learning disability, social care and community services across Bedfordshire, Essex, Luton and Suffolk. Tracy was proud of her job as she had the opportunity to help so many people who were less fortunate than others. At the time of this week's events, August 2011, Tracy Anstis was 37 years old. It's now time for me to introduce this week's villain. He was born in Oxfordshire, South East England in 1961 and his name is Lee Anstis. Sibling-wise, I know that Lee at the very least had one, a brother, but information about his parents and the rest of his family is scarce. Lee left school at 18, no idea how he got on, but he managed to secure a job working for the civil service. I guess he must have done alright at school because he secured that role with the civil service as soon as he'd finished school. Deciding that the job wasn't for him, Lee transitioned into the armed forces. He joined the RAF and spent a total of nine years there. While working in places such as Saudi Arabia as an aircraft instructor, Lee met and married his first wife. He was 22 when they married, and the couple went on to have two children. In the early 90s, Lee stopped working for the RAF and rejoined the civil service. He appears to have left a year or two after the Gulf War ended in 1991. By 1994, his first marriage had ended, and in May of that year, Lee took an excessive amount of tablets in an attempt to end his life by way of an overdose. His marriage failing was said to have been the key trigger. When the attempt failed, Lee spoke with his GP, who in turn referred him to a secondary mental health service. Time for a famous British murders tangent. This episode focuses heavily on mental health, a subject I'm admittedly not that knowledgeable about. I had no idea what primary and secondary mental health services meant. Primary services include things like your GP, whereas secondary are more specialised mental health teams that your primary service will refer you to. When a secondary service finally saw Lee, the waiting lists are often very long, he was only seen by a counsellor once, who decided that he was fit enough to be discharged back to his GP. The secondary service suggested further counselling, but Lee's issues weren't deemed to be severe enough to warrant him staying under their care at that time. Lee's second marriage was to Tracy, and as I mentioned earlier, the pair had a daughter. She was born in 2003. The family lived on Carlisle Close, a cul-de-sac in the Bedfordshire town of Dunstable, which is a stone's throw away from Kensworth Quarry. Fast forward to the summer of 2011. Lee was approaching his 50th birthday, Tracy was 37, and their daughter will have been 7 or 8. The couple's marriage had deteriorated greatly, mainly due to Lee's possessive and controlling behaviour. He was constantly jealous of his wife. In particular, he was jealous of the number of friends she had and the love she received from them. As a result, he became overbearing and overprotective when it wasn't at all necessary. In Lee's head, Tracy was being unfaithful to him. He believed she was having an affair with another man. 
Now, I can't confirm the exact date or month, but the pair separated in early 2011 and Tracy moved out of the family home with their daughter. They didn't get divorced at that point. As you may be aware, divorce isn't as simple or quick as that. But for all intents and purposes, Lee and Tracy were separated. That's how Tracy saw it anyway. Lee, on the other hand, took the separation incredibly badly and could not come to terms with it at all. He refused to accept that his wife no longer wanted to be with him and his journey over the next few months would lead to tragedy. Wanting to move on with her life and looking happier than ever after the separation, Tracy met a man named Glenn Fisi and the pair started a relationship. That was in either May or June 2011. Like Tracy, Glenn had also previously gone through a marriage breakdown, so they had that in common. Tracy was in the process of speaking to divorce lawyers during the summer of 2011, but the process wouldn't even get the chance to get off the ground thanks to the husband she so wanted out of her life. The events I'm about to tell you occurred from mid-June to August 2011. The details are from a report published in May 2015 following an independent investigation into the care and treatment of Lee Anstis, referred to as Mr Z in the report. It was written for NHS England, Midlands and East by Verita. A link to the full report is in this episode's references if you'd like to read it. You can find them at britishmurders.com forward slash Lee Anstis. In early June 2011, I believe it may have been the 13th, Lee paid his GP a visit. He explained that he was having suicidal thoughts and had even considered writing a suicide note, but he couldn't go through with it. Lee said he had felt depressed and suicidal since March 2011, which makes me think that Tracy and their daughter probably left the marital home around that time. It was revealed during that initial GP visit that Lee had previously sought help and received treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, as a result of his experiences during the Gulf War. Lee was also reportedly suffering from PTSD due to his child's health, but I'm not sure which child that claim refers to or what the underlying issue was. He may have just been paranoid about one of his children getting ill or something. On June 17th, 2011, Lee wrote a suicide note addressed to Tracy, who was out with their daughter at the time. Once he'd finished writing it, he called Tracy and told her what he planned to do. After cutting their mummy-daughter time short, Tracy rushed home and read the note from Lee. To get some advice, she rang her colleagues at SEPT, who suggested that she take Lee to A&E ASAP. He was subsequently taken to Luton and Dunstable Hospital's A&E department, where a SEPT mental health liaison nurse assessed him. The nurse was from the Crisis Resolution and Home Treatment Team, or CRHT, one of the secondary mental health services I alluded to earlier. During the assessment, Lee said to the nurse, and to Tracy, who was also present, that his mental struggles came from the marriage breaking down. Lee confessed to having told all of this to his young daughter, who had in turn informed her teachers. Her school teachers took the necessary safeguarding action and reported the situation to child services. Because Tracy worked within SEPT, which covered Bedfordshire, Essex, Suffolk and Luton, it was considered a potential conflict of interest to have Lee gain access to a hospital bed within those areas. Therefore, it was recommended that Lee be sent to an out-of-area hospital. He was transferred to a 38-bed acute inpatient mental health unit called the Campbell Centre in Milton Keynes, that's in Buckinghamshire. Lee's initial assessment put him at a moderate to high risk of suicide and deliberate self-harm, which meant that he would be placed under near-constant surveillance. A psychiatrist diagnosed him with acute stress disorder. 
Lee spent three days in the Campbell Centre before being discharged on June 20th, 2011. Bizarrely, Lee was discharged to the care of the Luton and South Bedfordshire CRHT team, which falls within the areas serviced by SEPT. Lee was seen daily and admitted that he still thought about ending his own life, but those thoughts occurred less frequently than they had a few days earlier. Crucially, at no point did Lee mention harming Tracy, or anyone else for that matter. Two days later, on June 22, 2011, that began to change. During a psychiatric medical review, Lee openly expressed hatred and anger toward Tracy, but he didn't say he wanted to harm her. Lee was on medication by then, most likely the antidepressant sertraline, and the plan was to begin reducing his prescription. Five days after the medical review, Lee's suicidal thoughts were back. He attempted to take his own life by overdosing on his prescribed medication. He was saved and taken back to Luton and Dunstable Hospital for what is known as acute care. Acute care is where a patient receives active short-term treatment for a condition. This can include treatment for a severe injury, period of illness, urgent medical condition or to recover from surgery. It was agreed that, during his stay, Lee was to be reviewed daily by a CRHT liaison nurse. During one of his assessments on June 30th, 2011, Lee was advised to be admitted to a mental health hospital for more specialised treatment. He vehemently refused to be sent there. As a result, he was discharged from Luton and Dunstable Hospital and sent home. The reasoning was that the hospital's clinical team did not deem him to be a high enough risk to be detained under the Mental Health Act 1983. More daily meetings occurred, but to prevent the story from becoming too granular, let's skip ahead to July 7th, 2011. That was when Lee Anstis took another overdose of his prescribed medication. He was found in his bedroom after Tracy contacted the police. She had received a text message from Lee that caused her enough worry to warrant dialing 999. Once more, his life was saved. This time it was saved by Luton and Dunstable Hospital's Medical Intensive Treatment Unit. Lee was admitted to a Hertfordshire inpatient bed at Albany Lodge a few days later and remained there until mid-August. He was discharged from Albany Lodge on August 18th, 2011 and moved in with his parents in Oxfordshire. On August 24th, 2011, Lee contacted an emergency number he had been provided with should he ever feel unwell. He explained over the phone that he was concerned about his mental health and he was later contacted by a care coordinator from the South Bedfordshire Community Mental Health Team. An appointment was made for Lee to meet the care coordinator two days later on August 26, 2011 at 3pm. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. August 26th is where the tragic events of this week's case began. Lee missed his appointment with the care coordinator because he had more sinister plans for that day. He also chose to ignore the three phone calls made to his mobile by the care coordinator. Over in Flittick, Glenn and Tracy had spent the Thursday evening, August 25th, at his flat. The flat was located roughly 15 minutes away from Tracy's parents' house at Buttermere Close, where her daughter was staying. Somehow, Lee had cottoned on to the fact that Tracy was regularly staying at Glenn's flat and he decided to use their daughter as bait to lure Tracy into a trap. Lee called Tracy and told her he was going to her parents' house to see their daughter, despite him being ordered to stay away from the family. Glenn said the following about Tracy receiving that phone call from Lee. She looked up at me and said, he's coming to get my daughter. I said, I think you should call the police. 
I could sense whatever was going to happen wouldn't be good. Glenn wanted to accompany Tracy to a parent's house, but she insisted he stay at his flat. She felt that any confrontation with Lee would only be escalated if her new partner went along with her. As she set off, Glenn phoned Tracy's mum to explain what had just happened and that her daughter was going to their house. Some of the sources I used said that Lee sent Tracy a text message to advise that he was going to a parent's house, but others said it was a phone call. Glenn said it was a phone call, so that's good enough for me to believe it wasn't a text. After calling Tracy, Lee made his way to the house and parked outside. Perhaps he was already waiting there when he made the call. As Tracy's car pulled up, Lee got out of his and removed a knife from his pocket. He had visited a local supermarket earlier in the day to purchase it. Tracy was heading towards the house when Lee called out to her from behind. He had cornered her between two parked cars outside the house. She had no way of escaping. Lee attacked Tracy with the knife, stabbing her four times. One of the strikes was to her chest and pierced her heart. Tracy's parents heard the screams coming from their daughter as their stepson attacked her and they phoned the police in terror. It does get worse. Lee and Tracy's daughter witnessed the entire thing. Once the police had been called, Tracy's mum Patricia called Glenn and screamed down the line, He's killed her! Lee stabbed her! The paramedics arrived shortly after the attack and worked on Tracy as best they could. She was taken to a nearby hospital, but sadly succumbed to her injuries that afternoon. In one last act of pure evil, Lee sent Tracy's phone a text that read, Are you taking her back for happy families? Not now. He was referring to their young daughter. Lee evaded police capture for just over a day. He was caught and arrested on Sunday, August 28, 2011, after his car was spotted in the Bedfordshire village of Westerning. He had clearly been preparing for his capture because he revealed to officers during questioning that some voices in his head had told him to hurt Tracy so that she could feel the pain she had caused him. He'd never mentioned such a thing throughout his time at mental health units. It seems to be a common thing that murderers do that. They play the game of diminished responsibility in the hope that they'll receive a lesser conviction of manslaughter and a more lenient sentence. Or perhaps they hope to be sent to a high-security psychiatric hospital instead of prison. In some cases, perhaps it is the truth, but the only ones who know are the killers themselves. Lee was held on remand for six months whilst awaiting his trial. The trial took place at Luton Crown Court and lasted roughly three weeks from mid-February to early March 2012. Lee denied murder and claimed not to remember stabbing Tracy. He reiterated that he had heard voices in his head that had previously told him to hurt his wife, so his mental faculties had been severely affected. Thankfully, the jury didn't buy what he was selling, and they unanimously found him guilty of murder. Sentencing judge Richard Foster handed Lee Ansys a life sentence on March 9, 2012, with a minimum term of 24 years. He said in his closing statement, An aggravating feature is that you chose to kill her where it would be witnessed by her parents and your eight-year-old daughter. That poor girl is the other tragic victim in this case. Your marriage had broken down irretrievably, yet you could not accept that, and you could not accept that you no longer had control over your wife. You used every trick in the book to try to keep her. She did not want you to do anything stupid and wanted you to remain in a relationship with your daughter. You thought only about yourself. You hatched a plot to confront her and kill her and then possibly kill yourself. With your military training, you knew exactly how to penetrate her heart. 
After hearing Lee's sentence, the following statement was released on behalf of Tracy's family. While we are satisfied with today's verdict and that justice has been done, the day Tracy died will be forever etched in our memories. It was the day our lives were torn apart. We are now doing our best to provide for her daughter, and while it is our intention to ensure she grows up as a well-adjusted young lady, she will be living a very different life to the one her mummy had planned for her. The family would like Tracy to be remembered as a beautiful daughter, a wonderful and beloved mummy, a loving sibling to her brother and sister, and an adored auntie to her three nieces. Tracy was loved so much and will be missed forever. Senior Investigating Officer DCI Sean O'Neill said, While I am satisfied with today's verdict, nothing will bring Tracy back or restore her family's faith in the world following the loss of their daughter, sister and mother in such violent and tragic circumstances. We know that Tracy is missed by all who knew her, but I hope that knowing the person responsible for taking her from them has been brought to justice will go somewhere to help them begin to rebuild their lives. At the start of this episode, I mentioned the May 2015 report written by Verita for NHS England, Midlands and East. Its conclusions were as follows. No evidence was found from Lee's words, actions or behaviour at the time that could have alerted professionals that he might become imminently violent. Lee only expressed hatred for Tracy on one occasion, June 22, 2011, but he never expressed any thoughts of harming his wife and had no history of violence or aggression. He had never presented in a violent, aggressive or intimidating manner to staff during his care and treatment. There is no evidence that he showed any signs of psychotic depression in the three weeks before his discharge on August 18th, just over a week before the incident. He was well enough to be treated in the community and could not have been sectioned under the Mental Health Act. His depressive illness was appropriately treated in the weeks before the incident and there is nothing to suggest that those involved in his care could have foreseen the incident or changed his treatment to prevent it from happening. As a result of their findings, they concluded that the murder of Tracy Anstice by her husband Lee Anstice could have in no way been predicted or prevented. And that was the story of British murderer Lee Anstice. Thanks again, anonymous listener, for suggesting that case. Perhaps a bit shorter than normal this week, but I hope you enjoyed it all the same. Let me know your thoughts about it on social media. I've got six new reviews to read this week. Karen Vermeer recommended the show on Facebook by saying, Absolutely love this podcast. I'm binging it at the moment and dreading when I catch up and have to wait a whole week between episodes. Stu's style is usually to the point and succinct, but detailed enough to satisfy my curiosity. Any ramblings in his lovely accent are usually topical and interesting, such as the five facts about the local area. Love the way you mix it up between seasons with two-parters and guests. Just keep doing what you love best, Stu, because we love it too. J.Ane left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I started listening last week, and I'm binge listening. Stuart has a way of telling the stories and keeping listeners engaged. His accents are hilarious. You hear that, Mum? Hilarious. And he doesn't take himself too serious. Patreon member Kerry Lloyd left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Found this podcast by chance. Now it's my top listen-to podcast. Love the icebreakers at the beginning and Stuart's calm and friendly way of explaining his well-researched findings. The length of the episodes are just right, short enough for you not to lose interest, long enough to include all the facts. Nice touch at the end of every episode to acknowledge and thank listeners' reviews and new Patreon members, etc. I'm off to buy you a coffee, or two, it actually ended up being three, for covering my suggestion. Cheerio, 
Lily Munster left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Hello there, Stuart. I really love your show. I'm new to your podcast, but I really love it since you have so much info in that amount of time. Really interesting too. Keep the awesome stuff coming. Hayley Pez left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a gem of a true crime podcast. I've been listening for a good while now and really look forward to new episodes, having exhausted all of the older ones. Each episode is very well written. Stuart hits the right balance of factual and respectful narrative with a smattering of dark humour that's needed to not make the story too sombre listening and all delivered in a lovely lilting northern accent. I love the format of shorter and longer episodes and the interviews are super interesting too. Thanks for making those boring work commutes far more enjoyable. And finally, Brooke A left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. This is such a great podcast. I discovered it a couple of weeks ago via Scottish Murders, shout out Dawn, and have now binged my way current. I work from home and Stuart has been the perfect audio companion for my workday. I appreciate the shorter episode length and enjoy the bonus interviews and crossovers with other podcasters. Looking forward to new content. Thank you so much, Karen, Janie, Kerry, Lily, Haley, and Brooke for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each of those on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, Stephanie Lewis, Lorraine Purden, and Debbie from Fighting Fit Devon for joining the show's Patreon. Thank you again, Kerry Lloyd, for buying me those three beers at buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Lisa E. also bought me a beer and said, I teach A-level criminology and recommend your podcast as they need to know many crimes and criminals. I'm all caught up on the crimes and just have a few interviews to go. A beer from me and a coffee from my learners. It's absolutely mad. To think that my, as, my, as Christian Raphael puts it, dulcet northern tones are being blasted out to A level students. A level. I got shit A level grades. A level criminology students. Shout out to you all if you're listening. And thanks, Lisa, for the beer and for recommending me to your students. Please continue emailing your case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, eventually, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. But that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio! Cheerio!